The following content is provided under a Creative Commons license. Your support will help MIT OpenCourseWare continue to offer high-quality educational resources for free. To make a donation or to view additional materials from hundreds of MIT courses, visit MIT OpenCourseWare at ocw.mit.edu. Everyone clear on that? All right, cool. So today we're going to talk about the uh, economics of spam and security in general. And so up to this point in the class, we've mainly talked about the technical aspects of security. So we've looked at things like uh, buffer overflows, the same origin policy, Tor, and all kinds of things like that. And so the context for that discussion was that we were looking at how an adversary can compromise the system. We tried to devise a threat model that would describe the types of things we want to prevent, and then we tried to think about how we could design systems that would help us to defend against that threat model. Um, so today we're going to look at an alternate perspective. And the perspective that we'll look at today is why is the attacker trying to compromise our system? Why is the attacker uh, trying to do these evil things to us? And so there's a bunch of different reasons you can imagine why uh, attackers might be trying to do these evil things. Uh, so some of these uh, attacks are done for you know, ideological reasons. So think about people who uh, perceive themselves to be political activists or things like that. Or if you think about uh, Stuxnet, for example. And sometimes it's like governments attacking other governments. Right? And so for these types of attacks, uh, money, economics, is not the primary motivation for the attack to take place. Uh, and what's interesting is that it's, it's actually hard to make these attacks go away other than generically making computers more secure, right? So there's not really sort of a financial thumbscrew you can turn to make uh, these attackers disincentivized to do things. Uh, however, there are um, some types of attacks that do involve a strong economic component. And those are some of the things we're going to look at today. You know, one of the interesting things, though, is that for a lot of these attacks that don't have an economic component, in that we can't use regulation or things like that to try to prevent them, it can sometimes be difficult to figure out you know, how we'd be able to stop them at all beyond, like I said, just trying to make computers more secure. So for example, Stuxnet's a great idea. right? So this is the uh, malware that was attacking some of the industrial software uh, in Iran with the centrifuges. So you know, we all kind of know where Stuxnet came from. right? We basically know it was the Americans and the Israelis, basically. But I mean, can we prove that in a court of law? Right? Like, who can we sue to say, like, you put Stuxnet on a machine? Right? So it becomes a little bit murky when you have some of these attacks where it's not clear you can you know, sue the Federal Reserve or you can sue Israel or something like this. And furthermore, no one's gone on the record as officially claiming that it was them. So there's some very interesting sort of legal and financial issues that get around, that get involved when you look at how to prevent these attacks. So there are many kinds of computer crime that are driven by uh, economic motivations. So for example, uh, state-sponsored industrial espionage for instance. So this is one thing that some of our previous speakers have talked about. Sometimes governments try to hack into other governments or other industries to steal intellectual property or things like that. Uh, and what's interesting is that, like the attacks that we'll look at today, which are spam, you'll see that it actually takes some money to make some money. Right? So spammers actually have to invest in an infrastructure before they can actually send these messages out. And so if you have these attacks where you know, it takes money to make money, and you can figure out what that financial uh, sort of tool chain looks like, then maybe you can think about applying upstream financial pressure to sort of stop that downstream uh, sort of malware attacks or, or security problems. And so I think the take home point is that if we look in, at the context of spam in particular, you know, spammers will stop sending spam if it becomes unprofitable. Right? One of the sad truths of the world is that we continue to get spam messages because it's cheap for them to send them, 
and you know, two to three percent of our fellow human beings will actually click on links and look at stuff, right? And so, as long as these these costs for sending these messages out are so low, then even if the hit rates are low, people can still make money off that kind of stuff. So, for today, we are going to look at uh, attacks that have um, sort of a significant uh, economic component to them. And so one interesting example, which uh, I actually just read about, uh, takes place uh, in China. And so in China, they have this problem uh, with what they call text message cars. And so the basic idea here is that people drive around with these cars that have these radio uh, antennas uh, attached to the side. And they can essentially do, think of it almost as like a man in the middle between people's uh, mobile cell phones and the actual cell phone tower. And so they can basically run around in these troll cars and they can get all of these cell phone numbers, right, and then use that car to then send spam messages directly to the numbers uh, that they've collected using this sort of vehicle of hate, right? And so these text message cars can actually send uh, upward of uh, 200,000 messages a day. Right, which is an incredibly high number. And the cost of labor over there is actually very cheap. So you know, it's very inexpensive to hire a driver, drive around one of these cars, and just sort of snoop on people's traffic and send them spam. So you know, let's look at the economics of this. So uh, what is the cost of uh, the evil antenna, this thing that allows people to um, take these messages off the air? So roughly speaking, it's somewhere in the order of about 1600 bucks, give or take. So how much profit can these people make uh, a day? So in a hilarious coincidence, this is also roughly uh, $1,600. So this is very interesting. So what this means is that once you buy one of these things, then in a day, you've essentially made back your money. Okay, So that's great from the perspective of being a spammer. Now you might say, oh, okay, but you might get caught by the police and then you, know, you might get put in jail or have to pay a fine. So in the case of uh, the fines, so the fines for getting caught are less than uh, 5K. And people rarely get caught, right? And so these are the types of sort of calculuses we have to look at when we're trying to think about how to uh, economically uh, deter these spammers. Right? Because if these spammers only get caught you know, a couple times a year, and they basically make back their hardware costs in a single day, it's very tricky to figure out how we can use financial disincentives to make them stop doing this kind of stuff. Uh, and what's interesting is that uh, in China, the, the mobile carriers are also somewhat implicit in this scheme. So every time you send a spam, right, you're going to send some small amount of money to the mobile carrier, right, a couple cents. Right? It works that way over here as well. Now, over here in Europe, in many cases, the uh, mobile carriers have decided that they don't want angry customers contacting them saying, I'm getting hit by these spam messages all the time. Right? But apparently, a lot of the uh, Chinese mobile carriers, at least the top three ones, they're actually seeing these spam messages as a source of revenue. Right? And so they, they actually think that this is uh, a nice way for them to get some free money. And so in fact, these uh, uh, telcos have set up these things called uh, 106 prefix numbers. I don't know if you've heard of these before. Um, 
But the original, there's apparently a ghost in the room, uh, but the original purpose of uh, these numbers was to do things for non-commercial reasons. So for, imagine, for example, imagine that you uh, run a company and you want to send a bunch of text messages to all of your employees. Right? You could use one of these 106 uh, numbers and you would basically be able to send things in bulk. You'd be able to uh, avoid some of the built-in rate limiting mechanisms they have in the cell network. So there's this nice thing sitting around that spammers can actually use. Right? And so as it turns out, uh, I think it's something like 55% uh, of the mobile spam that gets sent in China uh, comes from one of these 106 numbers. And so this is just a really interesting case study of how you know, sort of these uh, financial numbers work out and how sometimes you can actually have uh, sort of these perverse incentives for, in this case, the cell phone carriers to sort of go along with these spam sending schemes. And there'll be a link in the lecture notes. There's an interesting uh, Economist article about this. There's like a pan-African drum circle back there. Right? Okay. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is super exciting, man. I like it. I am being adversariously attacked. That's okay. We will play through the pain. Uh, perhaps this is the Masa. They don't want me to talk about Stuxnet. So, uh, another interesting thing about uh, security is that uh, there are actually many uh, companies that deal in cyber arms, right? And so, you know, this is kind of like something out of G.I. Joe, but there are actually these companies that will sit around and they will actually sell you malware, they will sell you exploits, they will sell you things like this. Uh, so one example um, is this company uh, that's called uh, Endgame. And so, for example, uh, for about... $1.5 million, in-game will give you uh, IP addresses and the physical locations of millions of unpatched machines. Right? So they have sort of vantage points all over the internet, and they know all kinds of interesting information about machines that you may or may not want to attack if, for example, you're a, uh, you're a government or a three-letter agency or something like that. Uh, for uh, about $2.5 million, they will give you what is delightfully called a, a zero-day subscription package. And so if you sign up uh, for this, then basically you will get uh, 25 exploits a year, they claim, for that much money. And so you'll get those exploits in your inbox or whatever, and once again, you can do with these things, you know, whatever you want. You've clearly got $2.5 million, so you've got a lot of spare time to think about this stuff, presumably. And so what's interesting is that, you know, a lot of the people who work in these cyber arms dealers, they're actually uh, ex-three-letter agencies, right? They're ex-CIA, ex-NSA, or things like this. And it's interesting to think about who are the actual customers for these cyber arms dealers, right? Some of them are actually governments, like the American government, for example. And they use these things to attack other nations or whatever. But some of the uh, people who buy this stuff are actually increasingly companies. So one thing we'll talk about a little bit at the end of the lecture is how sometimes companies are now taking cybersecurity into their own hands and sometimes doing what's called hackbacks. Right? So without getting the government involved, companies that are attacked by cyber criminals will sometimes go back and explicitly try to take out the people who tried to steal their intellectual property. And they've sort of used some very inventive legal arguments to justify this. And so far, it's actually been fairly successful. So this is an interesting aspect of cyber warfare. Yeah? How is that? How is what? How is that? How is it legal? Well, so 
I mean, information wants to be free, dude, right? So, I mean, if you, if you think about uh, stuff like this, for example, like just telling you stuff isn't necessarily illegal. I mean, it gets a little bit gray, right? But for example, if I tell you that, look over there, there's a house and the lock doesn't work on that door. <laughs> Can I have 20 bucks, right? Like that's not necessarily illegal, right? And so as it turns out, these companies have like hordes of lawyers that look into things like this. Right? But in many cases, I mean, if you think about it, like you, can like you can search for stuff on the internet and go to websites that tell you things like how to build bombs, for example. Like just posting that information typically is not illegal, right? Because you're just, you're just learning. Like what if I'm a chemist, for example, or something like this, right? So a lot of times just giving someone knowledge is not necessarily uh, illegal. But you're right that there's some gray areas here. And as we'll talk about with some of these uh, hackbacks, for example, it's not always clear, for example, if I am a bank. I'm not a government, but I'm a bank. I get hacked. It's not always clear that I actually have the legal authority to go back and let's say try to shut down a botnet or things like that. Companies have done stuff like that, but I think this is an example where uh, sort of the law is lagging behind uh, what do you call it? practice, I guess. And so people have used things like uh, we'll use copyright infringement law to attack botnets as a company because they're selling uh, illegal goods of ours, so we'll use IP infringement. Like, this is probably not what Thomas Jefferson was thinking when he was thinking about how these laws work. Uh, so it's, it's a little bit of a cat and mouse game. So we'll deal with a little, a little bit of that later in the lecture. Um, all right, so yeah, so this is very interesting. Um, and so basically what this all means is that there is this, um, there's this marketplace for all kinds of uh, computational resources that you might use uh, as someone who wants to launch attacks. So for example, there's a marketplace for uh, compromised uh, systems. So for example, you can go to the darker places of the internet. You can purchase entire compromised machines, right, that might be part of a botnet. Uh, you can actually buy access to a compromised website, for example. You might use that website to post spam or put up, you know, evil links or uh, things like that. You can also get access to compromised email accounts, like Gmail or Yahoo accounts. As we'll talk later, those things are very, very powerful for an attacker. Um, and you may also just buy sort of like a subscription service for a botnet. You'll just have this thing laying around. You can use it to send denial of service attacks or things like that. Um, so there's a marketplace for that. There's a marketplace for um, tools. So you can get, uh, as an attacker, off-the-shelf malware kits, for example. Um, you can uh, use, perhaps, you know, arms dealers like this to get access to zero-day exploits so you can write your own malware, so on and so forth. Um, and there's also a big marketplace for uh, stolen uh, user information. So this is stuff like social security numbers, credit card numbers, uh, email addresses, so on and so forth. So it's all out there on the internet if you're just willing to look for it. And so the paper that we're going to uh, look at today uh, basically focused on one aspect of this, which is the spam ecosystem. And so in particular, they look at the sale of uh, pharmaceuticals, of uh, knockoff goods, and software. And so they basically break this spam ecosystem into uh, three parts. So they break it into uh, advertising. So this is the process of somehow getting a user to click on a spam link somehow. Uh, and then once they've done that, there's this issue of uh, click support. So this is the 
uh, notion that once the user clicks the link, there has to be some type of web server, DNS infrastructure, so on and so forth, on the back end that actually presents the spam website that the user goes to. And then the final part is uh, realization. So this is actually allowing the user to uh, say that they want to buy something. The user sends money to the spammers, and the user is going to get some product uh, back from the back end. And so this is you know, where all of the uh, money makes place. And so a lot of this stuff is actually outsourced to what the uh, paper calls these affiliate programs. And so you can think of these uh, affiliate programs as essentially doing a lot of the, the back-end grunt work of talking to banks and Visa and MasterCard and things like this. And so a lot of times the, the spammers, they don't want to deal with that stuff. They just want to sort of uh, create the links and sort of do the, you can think of it as like the advertising component. And so a lot of times the spammers themselves, they will work on a commission. So they will get, you know, let's say anywhere between 30% uh, to maybe 50% of uh, the final sale that they deliver to one of these uh, back-end affiliates. So does that all make sense at a high level? Okay, so what we'll do is we'll look at uh, sort of each component of this, uh, this, this spam trajectory and then see how it works and then maybe think about how we'd be able to uh, shut down spammers at different levels of this uh, economy. So the first thing we'll look at is uh, the advertising component. And so like I mentioned, the basic idea of advertising is how do you uh, get the user to click on a link? That's the primary question we'll be concerned with here. And so you know, the typical thing, as we all know, is you're going to uh, email spam. Although, as we discussed at the beginning of lecture, people are also starting to use text messages and some of these other forms of, of uh, media communication. Uh, you can also imagine maybe here we're going to start using social networks as well. So now when you go to Facebook, not only are you polluted by your real friends' content, you're also polluted by spam messages too. So this is about economics, this discussion. So one interesting question is how much does it cost to actually send out these spam messages? And so as it turns out, it is not very expensive at all. So for about 60 bucks, you can send uh, a million spam messages. Right, so that's a super, super uh, low cost. And this cost is actually much lower uh, if you're directly operating the botnet. You can cut out the middleman. Right? But even if you are, are renting one of the botnets you know, from one of these marketplaces, this is still super, super low. Uh, How many of those are actually effective, as in they don't get filtered? Ah, so that's a good question. So that leads to my next point. So, so yeah, so, so this is, you're sending a million spams, but then they're going to get dropped at various points along the way. They're going to get caught in spam filters. Maybe people don't even, uh, they see it, but they just delete it because they know that an email that has like $18 signs should just be deleted. So if you look at the uh, conversion rate, I mean, you'll see that the, the click rates are actually very low because of things like spam filters and, and stuff like that. And also users are sort of, many users are trained to avoid these things. So these click, click rates are low. Um, and this is why sending spam has to be super, super cheap, right? Because you will not get a lot of conversions. So for example, there have been some empirical studies that looked at these click rates. And so uh, one study found that they looked at uh, 350 million 
uh, spam messages. And they found that out of those 350 million messages, uh, there was only about uh, 10,000 clicks on those messages. Okay, so there's a massive drop off here. And then out of these 10,000 clicks, there were only 28 purchase attempts. Right, so that's super, super low. And so that's why it's extremely important for this entire ecosystem to be very cheap from the perspective of the spammers. Because I mean, look at these drop offs here. I mean, these are like multiple orders of magnitude, right? And so that's why you know, one might hope that at least in theory, if we could squeeze, like for example, if we could drive you know, this number at maybe just 10 bucks, maybe that has like some catastrophic knockdown effect on how profitable this stuff is. Uh, so anyway, so it's very, it's very important uh, for the spammers that everything be as cheap as possible. So those 10,000 clicks, uh, again, like, are they, so how many of those 350 million emails were filtered out of the inbox? I'm just trying to get a sense of uh, yeah, so that, how many emails out of, how many emails those clicks were out of to yeah. gauge how effective spam filtering is versus how silly us humans are. When yeah, that I'm not, I'm not actually sure. That's a good question. Uh, so uh, I was uh, just uh, listening to a talk by Jeff Volker uh, on Friday about this stuff, and he says that uh, on the order of 20 or to 40 percent of clicks going to uh, one of these websites actually goes from a user spam folder. So users go in their spam folder <laughs> looking for this stuff and they click on it. So presumably there's a class of customers that are looking for this, and if they're looking for it, they're oh yeah, I'll just go in my spam folder and find where to buy this. So it's not clear that things going into the spam folder are getting zero clicks. Uh -huh. Yeah, I've heard anecdotal reports of that too, that some people, they, I mean, even for legitimate emails, they'll mark it as spam, just so like if there's a, sol a shoulder surfer, like at work, who's seeing them go to Gmail, let's say, they won't come in and see that you've subscribed to, you know, whatever, and then they can secretly go into the spam folder. They know it's not deleted and look at this stuff. And there's that, this is actually a really interesting point. So there's this whole psychology of who it is that actually clicks on these links. And so I think one of the papers that I, we linked to in the lecture notes talks about why do these Nigerian scams still work? Right, because you'd think that anyone who basically, like, you know, has either common sense themselves or a friend who has common sense would never click on one of these Nigerian emails scams, right? But one of the things that it turns out is that uh, the Nigerian meme is actually useful for spammers to filter out idiots, right? So in other words, if you are so foolish that you would still click on a Nigerian email, then oh, okay, that must mean that you know you're going to be one of these conversion things here. Right? So, and when you think about it, that's, that's one of the key things that spammers need. They need people who are sort of gullible enough or, you know, whatever, uh, idealistic enough to click through on these things. So there's a whole sort of uh, psychology behind this. Uh, it's very interesting. Um, so each of these purchases, how much are they worth? Yes, that's a good question. So it actually depends on um, the type of thing that you're looking at, right? So a lot of these purchases are not actually super high in value. Right? So if you think you know, someone's buying herbal Viagra, they're buying you know, like a knockoff Windows license or things like that. And in fact, like, a lot of times when they're buying these knockoff products, presumably the price is lower than what they'd actually be in the real market. Because right? otherwise you could just go down to your local mall and buy these things. So a lot of times these purchases you're actually making are you know, less than $1,000. Right? And oftentimes a lot less than that. Any other questions? Okay, yeah, so these conversion rates are super, super low. Um, so like I said, one of the key things to do as a defender is to try to uh, basically uh, make spam more expensive for the spammer. 
So there's a couple different ways you might think about doing that. Uh, one way you might think about doing that uh, are IP uh, blacklists. So maybe ISPs or someone else basically collects this list of IPs that are known to be bad, right? That are known to come from spammers, and then we just don't let these people send traffic. Um, so this kind of sort of used to work for a while, but now um, it's so much easier for the attackers to use techniques like uh, DNS redirection, stuff like that that we'll talk about in a little bit. This doesn't actually work out quite very well because now there's a much larger set of addresses that spammers can send uh, spam from, and they can also you know, dynamically switch the binding between um, sort of let's say host names and web servers and all these types of things. So this doesn't work out so well. Um, another idea that's been around for a long time is uh, charging for email in some way. So each email you send, you have to pay some micropayment, right? And so that currency could be a couple different things. So you might imagine that if I want to send you an email, maybe I have to pay like a tenth of a tenth of a penny, right? And that's no big deal for me because you know, I don't send that many emails a day. But if you're a spammer trying to operate at these volumes, then that quickly adds up, right? And that destroys their sort of value chain. Um, another idea that people have had is what if you used um, computation as a currency? So this is the idea that before my email server will accept an email from me, I have to solve some puzzle. You know, I have to do some math trick or something like that. So once again, that cuts down on the rate at which these bulk mailers can send uh, messages. And then uh, also we're all familiar with CAPTCHAs too. So this basic idea that I have to you know, I, you know, look at some picture of nine animals and find the cat instead of the dog or you know, type in some weird squiggly number that looks like a migraine or something like that. So there have been all kinds of, uh, of, of sort of ideas for charging for email to stop this kind of stuff from happening. Um, so you know, one of the classic problems, though, with all these schemes is that uh, you know, who's going to be the first one to implement it? And if, every, if all the email providers don't move forward at the same time, then of course spammers are just going to migrate to the email providers that don't require these techniques. So there's been sort of a problem of how do we get everyone to upgrade in mass. Um, then there's sort of this issue of, well, what would happen if a user device is compromised? So maybe you know, if someone breaks into my Gmail account, then maybe they're going to force me to pay you know, 350 million micropayments, which you know, could individually bankrupt me. Right? And so it's not quite clear that you know, some of these schemes are ready for prime time, but they do represent sort of an interesting thought experiment about how you might be able to stop some of this stuff from the sender side. So how do they work with mailing lists, where you have these big mailing lists? Yeah, so there's problems with that and like, you know, mailing list aggregation, and it's, so it's very, very tricky. Right? Because there are actually some bulk mails that you do want to send. I mean, you might imagine having some heuristic where you look at the, the size of the mailing list and maybe you sort of scale the payment according to that. So for example, maybe heuristically we think it's reasonable to send email to 1,000 folks, but not to like 350 million folks, or something like this. But you're right that there are a lot of uh, practical implementation issues that come out with this kind of stuff. Um, so what can the adversary do to get around some of this, some of these types of defenses? Uh, so they're basically, uh, three workarounds that adversaries might try. So one thing they can do is just use botnets, right? Because botnets uh, have a lot of IPs that the attacker can use. And so, for example, even if someone were trying to do something like IP blacklist, then maybe the attacker can cycle through a bunch of IPs in this botnet and maybe get around some of that uh, blacklist filtering. Uh, they can also try to use um, compromised uh, webmail accounts to send spam. 
And so the reason why these are super useful is because you know, sites like Gmail or Yahoo or Hotmail, those services can't be, can't be blacklisted, right? Because they're super, super powerful. So if you blacklisted the entire service, then you're probably gonna shut down service for you know, tens of millions of users. Now, of course, uh, these individual services can shut down you, right? And so that will actually happen once they sort of have these heuristics running that see that you're sending to a lot of people you've never sent before and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of sort of AI strategy that takes place on the webmail server side to try to uh, predict these things. But these things can be very valuable to an attacker because even if um, your compromised account is not used to send a lot of emails, it can be used to send emails to people that you know. Right? And so maybe it allows the attacker to do things like spear phishing more easily or things like that. So people are more likely to click on an email that comes from an email address that they recognize. So that's a very powerful technique there. Um, and then attackers can also try to do things like um, hijack uh, IP addresses from legitimate owners. So uh, as was uh, mentioned briefly uh, in Mark's talk, so uh, there's this protocol called uh, BGP that basically is used to control routing on the internet. Right? So there are these attacks that people can do whereby they will essentially say, hey, I am actually the owner of you know, some prefix of IP addresses, even though they don't actually own it. So all the traffic that's involving those addresses will go in towards the attacker, and then they can actually use those addresses to send out um, spam from there. And then once they're done with their evil, they can release the BGP advertisement and then you know, go try to do this somewhere else. Um, so there's been a lot of research in how you can essentially Think of ways to authenticate BGP, route advertisements, or otherwise prevent these uh, IP address hijacks. Um, so there's a bunch of different techniques that attackers can do to try to get around some of these uh, defensive techniques. Um, so, so this can all be done, but still, you know, these, these defenses, they're, they're not free, so presumably the attackers have to pay for the botnet somehow. They have to you know, get inside these webmail accounts. And so any of these defenses that you can do will help to drive the cost up of generating these spams. And so as such, they are still useful, even though they're not sort of uh, Perfect defenses. So yeah, so what do um, these botnets look like? So uh, at a high level, you uh, have the proverbial cloud from your cloud diagrams. You have your control, uh, command and control infrastructure out here. And this is the thing that actually sends commands to all of the uh, individual uh, bots down here. Right, so the spammer will talk to the CNC and will say, hey, here's my new spam message that I want to send, let's say, and then maybe these bots will you know, act on behalf of the command and control infrastructure and start sending emails to a bunch of people. So uh, let's see here. So why are these bots useful? Well, as we mentioned here, they have IP addresses, which are super useful, but of course they also have the associated bandwidth there. They also have computational cycles. Sometimes these bots are actually used as web servers themselves. So these things are, are very, very useful. Um, and they also <clears throat> excuse me, serve as a layer of indirection. So as we'll discuss in more detail in a second, indirection is very useful for attackers because that means that you know, if law enforcement or whatnot sort of shuts down this level, well, if the command and control infrastructure is still alive, then maybe the spammer can just sort of attach this command and control infrastructure to a different set of bots and keep on running. Uh, so this is one reason why uh, these bots are very useful. And these bots can scale to the order of magnitude of, let's say, millions of IP addresses. Right? So as it turns out, people will click random links involving malware all the time. So these things can get very, very, very large. Um, and so some of these takedowns that these companies get involved in with trying to take down these botnets, they involve millions upon millions of machines. So they're very sort of technically uh, challenging. So how much does it cost to get your malware installed on all these bots? Remember, these are all 
uh, typically regular end-user machines. So the cost for getting your uh, malware on one of these machines, so the price per host, is about, uh, about 10 cents for US hosts. And on the order of uh, one cent uh, for uh, hosts in Asia. So it's interesting that there's this differential here. Um, and so there might be a couple of reasons we can imagine for why that is. Uh, it might be that uh, people are prone to think that uh, you know, connections originating from the US are more likely to be trustworthy. Right? It may also be that uh, because there's more uh, pirated software running here and stuff that's like not actively up to date with respect to patches, it's actually easier to get botnet hosts over here. So you'll see some, some very interesting statistics about um, sort of how some of these rates might fluctuate, for example, as you know, let's say companies like Microsoft go out and they say, you know, they try to stamp down on piracy and things like that. But anyways, that, this is a rough estimate. Suffice it to say, this is not uh, super expensive. So what does, uh, any, any questions before we continue? OK, so, so what does this uh, command and control infrastructure look like? So you can imagine that uh, in one instantiation, the simplest instantiation, this is just uh, some centralized setup. And so this is maybe you know, one machine or maybe some small number of machines. The attacker can just log into those machines and then just essentially send these commands out to the botnets from there. Um, so if it's going to be centralized, then it's going to be very useful for um, the attacker to have what's known as a bulletproof hosting. And so the idea behind bulletproof hosting is that you want to put this uh, command and control infrastructure on servers that, are, that reside in, let's say, uh, ISPs that ignore you know, requests from banks or from law enforcement to take down servers. Right? And so there are actually bulletproof servers that exist. They charge a premium, because right? there's a little bit of risk involved there. But if you can manage to host one of your command and control centers there, you're, it's going to be very nice. Because then when the American government or when Goldman Sachs or whoever says, hey, shut this guy down, they're running spam, the provider will say, how can you make me? I run in a different legal jurisdiction. I don't have to follow your intellectual property laws, you know, so on and so forth. Um, so this is very useful. But like I said, uh, these types of hosts actually charge uh, a, a risk premium for running that kind of service. Uh, and so the other alternative for running this CNC infrastructure is this could be um, sort of a peer-to-peer -peer network. And so the idea here is that maybe, um, maybe this is sort of almost think of it as like a mini botnet up there too. So, so the entire control infrastructure is spread across uh, many different machines. And maybe at any given time, there's a different machine that's responsible for sending commands to all of these worker nodes down here. And so this is nice because it doesn't require you to have access to one of these bulletproof hosts. Um, you can sort of construct the CNC infrastructure using uh, regular bots. Uh, the P2P aspect of it makes it a little bit more difficult to provide guarantees about, for example, the availability of the hosts that are up here. But it does have some other nice advantages. So at high level, those are the two, um, the two approaches that people can use. So what happens if, uh, so if the hosting service gets taken down? Well, there's a couple things that the adversary can do. So they can use um, DNS to essentially redirect requests. 
right? So let's say that um, someone attacks, let's say, or someone issues a takedown for the DNS infrastructure or something like this. As long as the backend servers are still alive, what the attacker can do is basically um, the attacker creates a list of server IP addresses. And there may be hundreds or thousands of these uh, IP addresses that it collects. And then it will uh, bind uh, each one to a host name for a very short period of time. So let's say maybe for uh, 300 seconds. And so what's nice about this is that if someone's trying to run heuristics that say, like, if I see, you know, some particular a server sending, you know, more than, let's say, I don't know, a thousand spam-like messages in a given period, I'm going to try to issue some, some type of takedown to them. Well, these types of techniques will maybe help uh, the attacker fly under the radar of those types of detection techniques. Because essentially every 300 seconds they're saying, okay, I'm going to be serving spam from here, okay, then I'm going to be serving spam from here, and serving spam from here, so on and so forth. So this is a nice uh, use of interaction, at least from the attacker's perspective. Uh, and so, so, as I mentioned earlier, these types of indirections are one of the key ways that attackers try to evade uh, law enforcement in these detection heuristics. Uh, so you might think about, well, what if we just take down the DNS server? How hard is it to do that? Well, as the paper describes, there's a couple different layers at which you can attack these spammers. So you can try to take down the attacker's um, domain registration. So that's basically the thing that says, like, hey, if you're looking for, you know, uh, RussianPharma.rx.biz.org, then here's the uh, DNS server that you talk to. You can imagine attacking it at that level. You could also imagine attacking it at the level of taking down the uh, spammer's DNS server, right? The thing to which you'll be redirected once you look at that top-level uh, domain. And so what's tricky is that the attacker can use these sort of uh, fast flux techniques at every different level. So, for example, they can uh, rotate the servers that they use to act as their DNS servers. They can rotate uh, the, the, uh, the web servers they use to, to send out the spam, and so on and so forth. So that's just a sort of high-level overview of how people can use multiple machines to try to uh, avoid detection. So as I mentioned uh, earlier, you can use compromised uh, webmail accounts to send spam. And the power of that is that if you can get access to someone's account, then you don't actually have to install malware on in their machine, right? You can actually access their account from the privacy of your own machine, you know, wherever it is that you're located. And as uh, we were discussing earlier, this is useful for spear phishing attacks because you can send this spam message as the person whose account it actually belongs to. And so as a result, the webmail providers are very motivated to shut this kind of thing down. Right? Because if they don't do that, then they risk being blacklisted as a whole. Right? All of their users risk being uh, flagged as spamming, which they don't want. And also, the provider actually needs to somehow monetize their service somehow. They actually need real users to be able to you know, be doing things like clicking on ads that are in the right-hand bar of your webmail account. So the higher the proportion of their users which are spammy, sort of the less likely advertisers are to advertise on their webmail system. So the webmail account providers are very uh, incentivized to sort of shut down this kind of stuff. And so how do they try to detect uh, this type of spam? They use those heuristics. They might try to uh, use CAPTCHAs, 
right? If they suspect that you've sent some spam-like messages, let's say five times in a row, they might ask you to you know, type in one of those fuzzy letters or whatever. Um, and so suffice it to say, though, that a lot of these techniques, they don't work very well. And so if you look at the uh, price per account, right? So how much you as a spammer would have to pay to get one of these things, it's still super, super cheap. So it's in the order of you know, one to uh, five cents for an account on Yahoo, Gmail, Hotmail, something like that. So once again, this is very, very low. And so this does not act as an effective, a disincentive for spammers to try to do these types of things. So this maybe is a little bit disappointing because it seems like everywhere we go, we have to solve these captures if we want to buy things or send emails or that kind of stuff. So basically, what, you know, what happened to captures? They were supposed to make all this bad stuff go away. And as it turns out, um, the attacker can build services to solve uh, CAPTCHAs. And so this can be uh, automated just like anything else. So as it turns out, the economics for this is that if you want to solve one CAPTCHA, then it's approximately $0.001 to solve a CAPTCHA, right, which is nothing. And this can be done with very, very low latency, too. So CAPTCHAs essentially are not presenting uh, most large-scale spammers with a high barrier for sending these spams. And so how is, how is this being done? If it's this cheap, you might think, well, maybe it's being done all by you know, computers, by, by software. But it's not, actually. So a lot of this is uh, done by humans. And in particular, the attacker can outsource this in one of two ways. Uh, so first of all, the attacker can just find a labor market where the cost of labor is very, very cheap. Right? And so you can, just, um, you can employ humans to essentially act as CAPTCHA solvers for you. Right? So you, the spammer, are presented with a CAPTCHA by Gmail or whatever. You, the spammer, then send that CAPTCHA over to some human sitting somewhere. They solve it for you. They've earned you know, some small amount of money. And then you sort of send their answer um, to the uh, legitimate site. Uh, you can also do this um, with um, Mechanical Turk. Have you guys heard of uh, Mechanical Turk? I've asked a question. My back has turned to you. That's poor style. Uh, OK, so yeah, so Mechanical Turk is pretty neat, right? Well, I mean need if you're trying to do evil. So what's nice about that is that you can post these tasks to Mechanical Turk and say, hey, I have a picture solving game or something like this. Right? Or you can just come out and just say straight up, hey, I got some captures I want to solve. You post a price, and then basically the market will match you with people who are willing to do that task. Right? And then they'll, they'll do it for you. They'll post the answers. And so this actually uh, sort of automates uh, a lot of actually finding the labor pool um, for the spammer. Uh, the you know, oh, problem with this is that you have more overhead if you're the spammer because you know, uh, Amazon has to take some cut of that profit that's generated from that. But anyways, that's, that's very nice there. Um, and another thing that attackers can do is they can actually uh, reuse CAPTCHAs on legitimate sites. So there's a cap some CAPTCHA that the attacker wants to solve. They then have some legitimate site on the side where they present that exact same CAPTCHA. Right, and get like a real visitor to figure out what that CAPTCHA is, then they come back over to the first site and then use that answer um, as the answer. And like all these uh, crowdsourcing type things, if you don't trust your users, then you can maybe you know, replicate the work.
right? So you send the caption maybe two or three people, and then you come back in, use majority voting, and take whatever that majority vote was as your CAPTCHA answer. And so these are just some of the reasons why uh, the CAPTCHA defenses don't work as well as you might think. Um, so the providers, so for example, Gmail or Yahoo or whatever, could try to implement more frequent CAPTCHAs, let's say, to try to uh, push the friction level up for the, the, the spammer. The problem there is that then regular users will get irritated. So you know, a good example of this is uh, Gmail's two-factor authentication. So it's actually a super good idea, right? So whenever uh, Gmail will detect that you're, you're trying to use Gmail from a machine that it doesn't know, uh, know about, it'll basically send you a text message and say, hey, enter this verification code um, in the Gmail before you can actually continue to use the service. And so what's funny is that it's a super great idea, but like, at least for me, I get super irritated when I have to get that text message. Like I know it's good for me, but I just get angry, it's frictionful, and so I'll do it if I don't migrate to a lot of different machines a lot. But like if I had to do it any more than I did right now, it's unclear that you know, I'd feel as happy about it as I do. And so there's this very um, interesting sort of trade-off between the security that people say that they want and sort of the security measures that they're willing to put up with. So as a result, it's very difficult for the, the webmail providers to increase the amount of captures and still keep users happy. Uh, okay, so any other questions before we move on to click support? So, so is one of the reasons for the non-adoption of encrypted email, uh, besides the PKI issue, is that spam filters become very, very, very hard? Uh, because then uh, they can't do, uh, they can't inspect messages and then see what's going on. That's a good question. I think it's, it's actually hard to say. I don't know, because it's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem. So because there isn't a huge volume of encrypted email, uh, it's unclear whether you know, spammers would actually try to take advantage of that, but I could see that maybe being a problem. I mean, people have looked at ways to do um, sort of like computation over encrypted data, so maybe you could think about doing something there, but it's always tricky. So for example, like with spam, you know, people have these spam filters that were based on um, you know, Markov models and things like that. So what do the spammers do? They start making these images, right, that basically, uh, you know, can't be seen by the text scanners, but then have the spammy content in there. So it's always an arms race. All right, so let's move on to uh, click support. So what is this about? So once the uh, advertising step has succeeded and the user is given a link, so the user clicks on that link, so the user uh, contacts uh, some DNS server after clicking on that link uh, to basically uh, translate some host name that was in that uh, link to uh, some IP. And then after that, the, after that translation takes place, the user has to uh, contact uh, some web server that uh, has that IP. So to make all this work, the spammer has to uh, register a domain name, and then the spammer has to run a, a DNS server, and then they have to run a web server. So this is essentially what the spammer has to do to make this click support thing work out. Uh, so one question you might have is, well, why, why wouldn't the spammer just use raw IP addresses, for example? 
like in the spam URLs. Uh, and so does anyone have any thoughts about that? Why wouldn't you just have just, you know, 183.4.4. whatever instead of having something like, you know, russianjewels.biz. Yeah. Sketchy or easier to tell. Yeah, so one thing one would hope, right, is that a user would look at this thing that just has a bunch of numbers in it, and then you'd say, well, this clearly seems weird. Uh, as it turns out, this will only weed out some of the users. But you're exactly right. That will, there, there's sort of like some set of people you would lose just because nobody wants to click on that. Um, another reason is that, once again, having um, this sort of DNS infrastructure up here gives the attacker another level of indirection. Right? So once again, if the legal authorities or whoever um, shut down the DNS infrastructure, but they somehow don't manage to shut down that backend web server, then the spammer can sort of conjure up a different sort of front end for their service, and maybe try to use that same web server on the back end. Um, so that's another reason, I think, that people don't uh, typically put these raw uh, IP addresses in their spam uh, URLs. So, Another example of how this uh, redirection comes into play, and how this indirection comes into play, sorry, is that uh, these uh, spam URLs uh, often point to uh, redirection sites. And so the uh, redirectors. And so these are sites like, um, you know, bit.ly or things like that. Uh, and so in addition to things like bit.ly, you could also imagine that uh, a compromised website can actually also uh, act as a redirector. Right? So you just put um, you know, the appropriate uh, HTML or JavaScript in there that when the user goes to that site, it's then going to redirect the user's browser to some uh, other uh, different site. And uh, so once again, this is useful because it provides that level of indirection. Uh, and it actually it acts as a force multiplier. So you have a single, um, you know, sort of spammy web server backend, but then you can sort of name it using different different things, and that will allow you to maybe um, confuse uh, filters who have blacklisted, let's say, 10% of your uh, URLs, but not you know the other 90% of them. So this is a very very common technique. Um, and then another thing is that uh, sometimes uh, the spammers can use uh, botnets as web servers, or maybe as proxies, as DNS servers, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, and so we mentioned this a little bit earlier, but this is just another example of the more machines that you have as an attacker, the more defense that gives you, because you can sort of hide your evil amongst a larger set of machines. All right. So in some cases, so one thing the paper talks about is these affiliate providers. So these affiliate providers kind of act as um, sort of evil clearinghouses. So they will help to automate some of the tedium of interacting with the banks and, and things like this on behalf of you, the spammer. Uh, so one thing you might wonder is, well, why can't the law enforcement just take down the affiliate provider? They seem kind of like a choke point. And the thing is that these affiliate providers, they're kind of like, uh, like Spectre from the James Bond movies. Like they're very decentralized themselves, right? So it's very difficult to point to you know, an affiliate provider at this particular machine, and we'll just shut down that particular machine. Oftentimes, the affiliate providers are distributed themselves. And so that means that it's actually pretty tricky for, let's say, the FBI to just go to uh, some affiliate program and say, you know, thou shalt not do this anymore. Uh, and another interesting thing, too, is that the paper mentions that 
Uh, in many countries, IP laws are different, for example. So the FBI may not be able to enforce intellectual property treaties that we have with other countries. And also, uh, according to the paper, in many of these spam forums, the spammers claim that they are providing a useful, legitimate service to Western countries. They say that essentially, you know, prices are too high for some of these things in these Western countries, and that the fact that people are clicking on spam indicates there's a legitimate need to, you know, buy Windows copies that may be riddled with malware, right? And so a lot of times the spammers themselves don't feel that they're doing anything bad. And as we'll discuss a little bit later, the spammers do often actually give you the stuff that you've paid money for, which for me was one of the most surprising outcomes of the paper. Uh, and so we'll discuss why that is uh, in a little bit. So uh, one thing that the paper talks about is um, sort of various takedown strategies that you can imagine employing um, to try to uh, stop a spammer. So one thing they talked about, they said that uh, only a, a few number of uh, registrars host domains for many affiliates. And so what that means is that most of these uh, affiliate programs are there's sort of like this one-to-one -one binding between affiliates and the registrars that are dealing with their domain name inf infrastructure, right? It's very rare that you have a single domain name uh, registrar who's going to be associated with a bunch of different affiliate programs. So what that means is that in many cases, there's not sort of like this master decapitation strike you could launch. You take out this particular registrar, and then all of a sudden, like, the entire spam infrastructure falls down, right? And so they found similar results uh, for things like, uh, uh, like, web servers. So it's very rare that one ISP will actually host a ton of web servers for a ton of different affiliate programs. Right? So this distributed nature, once again, makes it very difficult to just say, if we just do, if we take out these, these three things, then the whole ecosystem just crumbles. Um, so that's a little bit disappointing, right? Because one would have hoped that there would be, you know, one web server in Evildonia where if we could just take down Evildonia, then people would stop sending us spam. That's actually not true. As we'll see later, though, that may be true with some of the banking back end, though. And so maybe we can actually put the squeeze on there. So anyways, uh, I was alluding to earlier about this, this realization phase. So the realization phase is what happens after uh, you, the user, have decided to um, buy something. So the realization phase consists of two parts. So the user uh, pays for whatever goods they've bought or they want to buy. And then the user, hopefully, uh, will receive those goods. So either in the mail because they're buying uh, you know, some type of knockoff drug, or either um, they get some software download because they want to get some fake version of Photoshop or something like that. And so the money flow looks something like this. So you start with the customer here then they are going to uh, tell the merchant, hey, I want to go um, buy something. They will send some uh, credit card info here. And then we're, the merchant's going to talk to the payment processor. And this is essentially a middleman that uh, helps the merchant, uh, the spammer, uh, deal with some of the intricacies of, of interacting with the credit card system. The payment processor will talk to the uh, acquiring bank 
So the acquiring bank, that's the merchant's bank. And then the acquiring bank, let's see, running out of space here, so uh, violating all good design standards, we will come up here. Uh, so the acquiring bank isn't going to talk to, they call in the, in the paper the uh, association network. But I mean, just think of this as, you know, for example, Visa. This, this is the credit card network up here. And then finally, the association network, Visa or MasterCard or whatever, talks to the issuing bank. And so that issuing bank is the customer's bank. And essentially, the uh, Visa or whoever is going to go to the customer's bank and say, hey, is this a legit purchase? This is a legit transaction? And if this is a legit transaction, then the money will actually flow through this entire system. Right? So this is kind of like what the end-to-end -end, uh, financial uh, sort of workflow looks like. And so this workflow can actually process a lot of money. So one of the papers um, that we mentioned in the lecture notes shows that you can actually, a single affiliate can get more than you know, $10 million at this workflow here. Right? And so in practice, uh, you might think that, oh, why wouldn't the you know, acquiring bank or the issuing bank say, oh, something looks kind of fishy here. Uh, as it turns out, in many cases, um, they don't. And so this gets this interesting discussion about uh, why is it that these workflows are often tolerated by the financial system? So for example, so why uh, do spammers properly classify their transactions? So if you want to send something through uh, this system, you have to tag that transaction with some type of, of type. You have to say, this is pharmaceuticals, this is software, this is whatever, this is whatever. So you might think that as a spammer, you wouldn't actually want to do this. Like if you were selling you know, fake Flintstone vitamins, maybe you don't want to say like this is actually a pharmaceutical transaction. Uh, what's interesting is that spammers do actually properly classify these transactions in many cases. And the reason is that there are high fines uh, if you misclassify. So essentially what happens is that uh, you know, these association networks like Visa or MasterCard, in many cases they are okay perhaps with transactions that are slightly shady, but they don't want to be blamed for like being a money launderer or for trying to deceive the uh, authorities. So as long as you properly classify what you do, then in a certain sense this gives the, the, the association networks a little bit of like, well listen, they told us what was going on, maybe the law was a little bit unclear, but we at least, Visa or MasterCard, did not try to hide the intent of this transaction. Right? So spammers do oftentimes properly classify their transactions. Um, so that's interesting. So it seems like they're playing within the confines of the system a little bit. So another question that I mentioned earlier is so, why send anything to users? Because presumably you're a spammer, so you're a criminal, right? So why, I mean, wouldn't it just be cool if you just like took people's money and then just ran? I mean, that'd be like the ultimate crime, right? So as it turns out, um, they actually send things to users uh, because of, surprise, surprise, high fines if they don't. 
right? So it's this very entertaining system whereby spammers kind of want to do things that are illegal, but then they actually can't use bitcoins yet, you know, and they actually have to work within the, the, the constraints of this pre-existing system. So as it turns out, um, there are these high fines if uh, you, so we're, you I mean the spammer, uh, have too many chargebacks. So a chargeback is essentially when a uh, customer tells their credit card company, hey, I didn't get the thing that I was supposed to get uh, that I bought with your credit card, or I got it, but they didn't like it. Right? So if you're a spammer and you have too many customers saying things like this, then you will actually get charged like very, very high fines. And as we saw uh, earlier, the, uh, the click-through rates for spam are super, super low. Right? The conversion rates are super, super low. So you know, even just one or two fines might wipe out your entire profit for a month, let's say, or something like this. So spammers are really motivated to avoid these fines in both cases. Is using PayPal obscure any of that, like the issuing bank? So typically, well, so yes and no. So you can think of those. PayPal is, in many respects, very similar to Visa or MasterCard. Right? So it has very similar regulations that um, sort of oversee it because it bears many of the same types of risks. Um, I do think that Visa has slightly stricter um, restrictions on some of this stuff, as we'll talk about in a second. But for all intents and purposes, PayPal looks very similar. Is there any sort of idea of having like a group where you, you know, make some sort of account and then intentionally go to a bunch of spammers, buy a bunch of things, and then ask for a bunch of chargebacks, whether or not they send it to you? In oh, order so to like in, incur these fines or like report them for misclassifying things in order to like just make them pay these fines. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's like yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like vigilantes. Yeah, exactly. I, that's interesting. I don't know if I've heard anything about that. I do know that um, the spammers do try to detect people who are trolling them. So, for example, like one thing they talked about in the paper a little bit is that. Spammer. So, so what, how, how did the authors of the paper determine all this? Right? So they actually got a bunch of spam messages. They clicked on a bunch of stuff. They got a special Visa card that they used to purchase this stuff, and then so on and so forth. So spammers obviously don't like this. Right? And so uh, in the paper, they called this test buys. Spammers want to prevent these test buys from researchers who are trying to figure out what's going on. So one thing that some spammers did um, do, I should say, is they actually require proof of your identity before you can buy something. So they might ask you to like, send a picture of your photo ID or something like that. Um, and in particular, after uh, the people, some people started doing this after Visa tightened up some of their uh, sort of rules about spam. Now the problem with this is that uh, most people who would click on spam apparently are still reluctant to send their photo ID to just some random person. And so there's a bunch of, uh, I've linked this, uh, one of these articles in lecture notes, there's a bunch of hilarious commentary from a spammer bulletin board where they say, oh no, Visa's cracking down on us. We tried to ask for people's photo IDs, but they don't want to send it to us for some reason. You know? And it's so weird that people wouldn't want to do that, but they will give them their, their credit card number. But anyway, so long story short, spammers are highly incentivized to try to test, to detect that kind of stuff. Um, so for chargebacks, if you don't necessarily want your bank to know that you're buying these slightly shady items, do a lot of users actually do chargebacks if they don't get the item, or are they like too embarrassed to choose what they do? Yeah, it's a good question. So I don't know what fraction of people who are in the set of people who 
bought herbal Flintstone vitamins, were disappointed by herbal Flintstone vitamins, and then, yeah, told their bank that... But, I mean, what's interesting, though, is that the bank has to know in the first place that they're going to this place, right, because the thing went through, right? So avoiding the chargeback, I don't think you're going to... But by doing the chargeback, let me see, I don't think you reveal any extra information to the bank that they wouldn't already know. Because they, they, they had to clear the transaction first for you to actually get it and be disappointed. So like roughly how many chargebacks is too much? Yeah, so some of the figures I've heard here are uh, greater than 1%. So, so in other words, if you're a spammer and you have more than 1% of your transactions causing these problems, you get in trouble. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's a little bit lower than that. But 1% is the number that I've heard. All right, so, so yeah, so, so to me, like I said, this was one of the most uh, interesting parts of the paper because I would have thought that a lot of spamming just involved just straight up fraud, that people clicked on links, they sent money, and they never got anything. But as it turns out, because these spammers have to go through this, um, this network, which has all of these sort of mechanisms to prevent um, sort of fraud, they end up do having to actually uh, ship things over to users. So that's kind of, kind of neat. Um, and so the other, another reason why spammers want to do these things, properly classify transactions, and actually send things to users, is that um, only a few banks are actually willing to interact with spammers. And so what this means is that you know, if the spammer is getting a lot of chargebacks or getting in trouble with the bank or the credit card company or whatever, and some bank decides, I can't do business with you anymore, there's not a really large set of other banks that the spammer could go to to continue um, their chicanery. So, uh, you know, one study of this stuff found that there are basically only 30 uh, acquiring banks that spammers were seen to use over some two-year period. And that's actually not very high, right? So there is this other incentive to not, um, to not sort of be too goofy with the financial system because you don't really have too many other places to go if you break those relationships. Um, so it seems like maybe this is a good choke point to try to cut down on spam. So we've already discussed how things like botnets give the attacker a lot of IP addresses. There's a lot of... Uh, you know, different types of hosts who are willing to run web servers, so on and so forth. But this number actually seems small. So maybe we can actually attack spamming here. Um, but as I alluded to earlier, it's a little bit tricky to do this because of things like differing IP laws, because of things like um, the fact that it can be um, sort of tricky to, to actually say that spammers are doing something illegal. Right? So, you know, if you are using spam messages to sell someone, just making this up, let's say sugar. Right? Sugar's delicious. It's not illegal to sell sugar, even at cut rate prices. Right? So even though the way that you may have drawn the user to that purchase was sort of duplicitous or kind of gross, it is not in and of itself illegal to sell someone sugar. Right? And so as it turns out, a lot of spam sort of falls into um, this gray area where the things that the spammers are doing are distasteful, but maybe not necessarily as illegal as you think. Now for stuff like uh, you know, pirated software, there it's much more clear cut. But suffice it to say, it's not always the case that you can just point to one of these banks and say, hey, your customers are criminals, because that's not always true. Particularly if uh, there's not a very strong um, sort of paper trail that uh, sort of attaches the financial transaction to some spam URL that was sort of the origin of the transaction. Right? It's often very difficult to prove those types of links. 
Uh, okay, so uh, since this paper was published, uh, the credit card uh, networks have taken some action. So this paper actually made a pretty big splash when it came out. And so uh, you know, the, the association networks like Visa and MasterCard and all of them were sort of wondering what can we do to sort of cut down on some of this uh, spam. So interestingly, after the paper came out, some pharmaceutical companies and software vendors actually lodged complaints with Visa. Right? So if you remember from the paper, Visa was the association network that the uh, researchers used to make these, these test buys, these dummy buys. So um, you know, it's a little bit unfortunate, but that then sort of showed some of these companies that, hey, Visa can be used as sort of the association network to, to sort of fund some of the spam or, or to transit some of the spam traffic. Um, so some people complained about that. And so uh, Visa made some policy changes. Uh, in response to some of the issues that were brought up in the paper and some of the complaints uh, that they got as a result. So now, for example, um, all pharmaceutical sales are now uh, labeled by Visa as high risk. So what this means is that if a bank acts as uh, an acquirer for these high-risk uh, uh, transactions, then Visa will have some more stringent regulations that they will put on that merchant side bank. So for example, they will require that bank to engage in a risk management program, and you know, they may be audited more frequently, and so on and so forth. So Visa made that change. Um, and Visa also. Uh, sort of changed its uh, operating guidelines. So its operating guidelines, now they explicitly enumerate and forbid illegal sales of uh, drugs and trademark enforcing goods. So the reason why they did this is that by tightening up this language, uh, it is now easier for them to issue more aggressive fines against uh, banks and merchants that they feel are uh, doing things like, like selling illegal pharmaceuticals or selling uh, uh, knockoff versions of watches or things like that. Um, so once again, there, there's still a lot of this spam that's in that gray area where it's not necessarily illegal. It's just that the customers were acquired through spending techniques. But this is very useful because now Visa can drop some much bigger, uh, much bigger hammers on folks. And as I mentioned before, some of the spammers tried to react to this by saying, well, let's just prevent these test buys, right? Because not only do security researchers do these test buys, but the association networks can do these test buys too. So they did some things like the photo ID type stuff, and that tended not to work out super well. Um, and so at least a few years after these changes were made, this did have an impact. I'm not sure uh, sort of what the latest state of the art is with respect to sort of trolling these visa policy changes, but it was kind of cool to see this paper have uh, this impact in real life. So one interesting thing they mentioned in the paper is they talked about um, sort of the ethical aspects of doing security research, and in particular doing this research about the spam chain. So you know, to actually understand how some of this banking stuff worked, these researchers actually had to make purchases. They actually had to give money to people in exchange for these products. And so in the paper, they go through this 
uh, kind of semi-hilarious uh, defensive section where they say, we totally burned everything that we bought. We didn't use it. And you know, we talked to the companies whose pirated software we were buying before we got it. But these things are actually pretty important to go through, particularly if you're in a university setting. Because as you may know, if you want to do anything that involves like particularly human research, but anything that might have these ethical sort of aspects to it. You have to get things cleared by lawyers, and it was like an IRB and things like that. So it was actually pretty important for them to jump through these hoops because, you know, at the end of the day, they had to, you know, at least be somewhat confident that they weren't supporting some, you know, deeply nefarious activity in some, you know, far-flung corner of the world. So I thought that was another interesting part of the paper, too. Um, and, you know, other people have talked in this class about things like what are the um, ethics of releasing, you know, zero-day exploits if you know they haven't been patched by someone. So it's a really interesting aspect of uh, doing security research. Is there any sort of oversight on, like, security ethics? Because from the paper, they said the IRB wasn't interested. Yeah, so that was super interesting. Yeah, so they said the IRB, the, uh, the IRB wasn't interested, I think, because there was no like obvious human subject. Um, but I think that at most universities, you couldn't just you couldn't just say, oh, there's no direct human subject. Let me just go buy some stuff from just some somebody at the end of a spam link, right? And what they described in the paper is that, and actually in the acknowledgement sections, they they thanked like this whole set of people, like you know, Sally at Legal, and, you know, so and so, you know, the philosopher for Ethical Computing Association and stuff like that. Uh, so I don't think there's actually like a uh, how do you say like a like a an America-wide let's say standard for doing this type of research. I know that at each university, IRBs sort of have slightly different policies, what they do and do not allow. Um, but I don't think there's a, there's a blanket policy. Out of the 350 million spam emails or whatever yeah. that they checked before, and the 28 that actually responded, is there any chance that an appreciable number of those 28 spam responses are coming from researchers researching on spam responses? <laughs> no. Well, it's true. And this type of calculus is actually one reason why I think the authors went to such lengths to sort of defend themselves. Because if you think about it, you know, the reason why those statistics are so hilarious is that it means like if you were to add five or remove five, that's the difference between like a sparrow being able to give their kids like a real gift versus like a piece of coal, right? Because those numbers are so small. Uh, and so I think that, so with respect to those, that particular statistics I gave you, I don't really know, you know how many of those were, were researchers. Um, but I do think in general, like I said, the spammers, they want to take your money. And so if, if they could find some equilibrium whereby you know, security researchers could, could do test buys, but that had no impact on their overall sales, they'd be fine with that because they just want the money. The tricky thing is that let's say that, and it's making this number up, half of those 35 were test buys, then that resulted in people putting pressure on the banks and then instead of 35, they'd be getting two that they don't want. So that's why they're so motivated to stop that stuff. Yeah, how much of this is like blind emailing versus you know, any sort of filtering? So I'm sure they could run some models and get that 350 million down to like one million. Yeah, so it's all about sort of the cost benefit analysis from the perspective of the spammer. Um, so I think that you're right. And there are actually, uh, there's a marketplace for, uh, how to say it, like more targeted stuff. In particular, that's where some of those compromised email accounts can become very useful, right? And so, um, but I think what you see is that people tend to um, go for the more focused stuff, uh, like the more focused spam emails for what they view as like higher reward targets. So for example, like um, political groups or like, you know, people associated with the Dalai Lama, for instance. Like there, it's uh, the, the perceived value of being able to get into that system is so high that people will spend the time to do this kind of stuff. I guess I was thinking more like it'd be interesting if there's one company that dedicated to finding all the gullible grandmas and putting mm -hmm. their emails and stuff. 
Oh, interesting. I see. So basically having some database where it's like totally send spam to this person because, yeah, they... I wouldn't be surprised if stuff like that existed. Um, but I, I don't know if they do. Um, yeah, so uh, one last thing that I want to mention is that, um, and I alluded to this a bit earlier in the lecture, is that some companies have taken to doing these things that they call hackbacks. Right? So the idea is that, let's say that you're a bank, someone tries to break into your bank, steal more information, that bank will then, of their own volition, then go back to those hackers and try to do something, where something may be as, you know, quote unquote, innocuous as shutting down the botnet, or maybe they try to steal their information back or things like this. And this has actually become very, um, much more common than it used to be. And one reason for this is that, uh, you know, because the, the legal system has been a little bit slow in adapting to some of these threats, uh, some of these institutions, in particular software companies and banks, are tired of waiting for government, like their national government, to deal with stuff. And so what ends up happening is that, uh, for example, there was this uh, big botnet in 2013 that was hosting all kinds of like pirated goods and things like that. And so this huge coalition of like Microsoft, American Express, uh, PayPal, a bunch of them launched an operation to take down a botnet. Right? They themselves took in the botnet. They lurked around for a while. They learned about where the command and control infrastructure was. They actually went in there, took control of the command and control infrastructure, identified where all the end user bots were, and they could send them you know, messages or whatever saying you need to patch your machine. Right? And so it's a very interesting area of intersection between security and the law. Right? Because what part of American law, for example, gave those companies the right to do that? So uh, what uh, Microsoft lawyers said, at least, is that they said these botnets were violating Microsoft trademarks, right? So for example, if you sell pirated goods and you're saying, like, this is, this is Windows, for example, but it's not actually Windows or it didn't come from an official channel, then Microsoft says, okay, you're violating our trademark. Therefore, you know, we can hack your botnet. <laughs> it's a little interesting to see sort of how that, how that, that, that leap of logic took place. But the courts allowed it. Right? And this is increasingly happening more and more. And the banks in particular seem to be pretty upset about this because there seems to be a lot of sort of state-level sponsorship of some of these banking hacks. And you know, the bankers care about the money. And so when they lose this money, they get very upset about that. Um, and so it's interesting to see how some of the uh, sort of burden for doing cybersecurity, in particular offensive operations, has now shifted a little bit more to the, the private sector. So it's not quite clear what the long-term implications of that are. Okay, with that, that's the end of the lecture. Uh, and I guess we will see you on uh, Wednesday and we will uh, go through the class projects.